Hello, thank you for joining us and welcome to the first in our brand new series of podcasts where we'll be introducing you to some of the brightest minds, shining talents and most influential people across the wonderful city of Lincoln. This is Conversations with the Lincolnite. Now this is not just the first time for us, but it's the first time I've made a podcast, um, so we'd really love to hear what you think. Do let us know through all the usual channels. My name is Emily, I'm the uh, Associate Editor at The Lincolnite, and I'm privileged to be joined today by leading archaeologist, lecturer and TV presenter Carenza Lewis. Now many of you will know Carenza for her TV work on programmes including Much Loved Channel 4 series Time Team. And she's renowned for her work in the academic fields of history, archaeology and landscape studies. Now Carenza currently works at the University of Lincoln's College as, uh, of Arts as Professor of Public Understanding and Research. I've got that right. And before that she taught at the University of Cambridge for 15 years, having previously been an archaeological investigator for the Royal Commission of Historical Monuments of England. Uh, now Carenza, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. It's been just over three years since you came to Lincoln. That's right. <laughs> what uh, attracted you to the city? Well, it's a beautiful city, um, but I, what attracted me to come and work here was the university. Um, it's a, yeah, I was at Cambridge before, as you've uh, said, um, which is an amazing university. Lincoln is just very, very different. It's young, it's bright, it's expanding. There's a real sense of sort of possibility and opportunity and uh, courage and ambition to do new things. Um, and I felt they were really interested in the sort of thing I'm interested in, which is about connecting the world of academia and ideas and knowledge better with wider society. And of course, Lincoln itself is a very historical place. Uh, there's lots for you to, uh, to explore as a, as a historian, as a, an archaeologist. And I should probably explain to people as well that we are currently sat in uh, Lincoln Castle's um, Victorian prison. Um, and I suppose it kind of feels like a, possibly like a second home to you. I know, I know, I know <laughs> castles are, are your speciality. You make it sound um, like I've served time. Yeah, that was probably is, the, uh, <laughs> the wrong way of putting it. But um, the castles, it's uh, castles itself and, and, and the medieval period are uh, kind of a speciality of yours yes, as well. Yes, the, the um, obviously archaeologists specialise in all sorts of things right across the world and, and all periods of time and all forms of evidence from microscopic fragments of DNA to space archaeologists who look at satellite imagery of old landscapes. Um, but I've always, uh, my main specialism has always been the medieval period and I've excavated medieval castles before and I now live quite close to Lincoln Castle here so it seemed a good place to come and meet in the echoey chambers know, of the prison. It's rather echoey, it's rather spooky, we're surrounded by um, skeletons, uh, spooky skeletons, we're surrounded by archaeological I'm an archaeologist, finds. we're used to skeletons. I know and we've got a, um, a, <laughs> a photographer snapping away at us as we speak as well. Hi Steve, Steve's with us today, our photographer, he's going to be going on a walk around the castle with us um, a little bit on. So as you mentioned, you have a tremendous track record of engaging the public in academic research and breaking down barriers between uh, the academy and the wider community. Um, so what sort of projects have you been working on um, with the local community here in Lincoln? Well, the first thing I did when I first arrived at Lincoln was a big project funded by the Arts Council looking at attitudes to heritage um, across the whole of County Lincolnshire, and in fact that's just about to be published as a book. Um, and we did a whole load of things for that, including a survey of about 2,000 people took part in that. Um, so we found out what people like about heritage in Lincolnshire, what they are less aware of, um, what encourages them to get involved with it and visit it. Um, 
and what, what we'd need to do to make it more attractive. And that's been really useful, in fact, because the County Council's been looking at its heritage services provision. Mm. So that's what we did when we first arrived. I'd done some digging in some of the villages. So we did some uh, digging in Bardney, a little bit in Old Clee and Healing. Um, and we're now just about to start a project and doing some excavations up at Rise Home this summer, right, which, of course, the university owns the estate up there. Um, okay. So uh, I'm really looking forward to that. And is that something that the public can still get involved in? Yep, there's certainly opportunities for the public to visit and some people, so for some certain people to take part mm. as well. So, what sort yeah. of um, findings have you, have you discovered from, from um, well, well, of course, we don't know until we start digging that, but Riseholm's really interesting. There's a deserted medieval village out there, which is as a medievalist uh, who studies settlement. That's what I'm really, really interested in. But what we're going to start looking at is um, some possible Roman remains up there, um, which have shown up in sort of geophysical surveys, nothing to show on the surface there. Right. Um, but we think there might be some, um, well, we don't know what the features are, but they've, they've showed, people who've watched Time Team will be familiar with the idea of geophys when you kind of x-ray the ground. And there's some sort of rectangular features there that look like they might be buildings or they might be ditches. Uh, we don't know, um, but we want to give an opportunity um, to work with um, some of our local communities to give them a chance to kind of connect with that mm. and help us start to retell the story of one place. I mean, Riseholm's really interesting. It's very near Lincoln, which is, of course, one of the major cities, one of the three great cities of Roman Britain is Lincoln. Mm -hmm. You know, it's difficult sometimes to believe it. It's just a small place today, but it was, you know, one of the three great cities. It's right next to Ermine Street, of course. Um, Rise Home is also right next to Ermine Street. Um, and, um, you know, there's some amazing sites nearby. So it will be just interesting to see Usually I've done lots of work digging in villages, rural villages, mostly in East Anglia, so Norfolk, Suffolk, Essex, Cambridgeshire, okay. Bedfordshire, Hertfordshire, um, and sometimes a place like Hampshire and Yorkshire, um, but mostly in Eastern England, and we find very little Roman um, stuff in those villages at all, which is itself quite interesting. But it will be, so it's going to be interesting at Riseholm, which is so close to Lincoln which if anywhere is going to have more Roman material and more continuity from the Roman period to the medieval period, you'd expect it to be near somewhere like Lincoln. So it'll be really interesting to see if that's what turns up at Riseholm. But we'll have a good time anyway. And people, that opportunity that taking part in an excavation gives you to actually uncover your own finds. You never know what's coming what up next. What does it look like from the, the beginning of the day? What, where do you start and, and what can people expect if they were to, um, to join one of these projects? Well, I mean, you, you start off by opening up a, a trench. Mm -hmm. um, we were debating whether to take the sort of topsoil off with a you know, mechanical earth mover. It does save a little bit of effort, so we might do that for the bit that's been ploughed. Um, and then you clean it up, you get um, a mattock, which is like a big pickaxe, only with a flat edge, and you use that just to sort of clean across the surface, take the loose soil off, um, and that gives you a, a surface you can see a bit more clearly what's underneath it. And then you'll generally trowel over that, so it's like a repeated series of hooverings really across the side. And then once you've trowelled it, you can start to see details of where, you know, whether you've got um, kind of remains of um, slots where you might have had a timber be building, a timber beam that supported a, a, a building. Um, if that's been there, where that's rotted away, the fill will be a different colour to the kind of limestone rich soil that's naturally around it. So you can see that and you can think, oh, well, we'll excavate that, we'll see mm. what it's like. And then you might find some pottery in it or some other finds that will enable you to date it. But the pottery looks like nothing when it comes out of the ground, so right. you need specialists to be able to say, yeah, that's a bit of pottery rather than a bit of stone. Um, but, you know, the, the, 
there's a great camaraderie about it. You get the in-jokes developing. You get that sense of teamwork. Everyone's working on their own little bit of the site, but everyone's after the same thing. And you have to put everyone's separate story discoveries together to make sense of it. So everyone's working on their own little uh, on their own little bit of the jigsaw. Sounds like a really big sort of treasure hunt. Everybody seems it to. It is. Have yeah, a lot it's fun, like yeah. a huge jigsaw puzzle, yeah. really. Yeah. And and everyone's working on their own little bit. And it's not until you put all the bits together you can see the picture. Mm. What are the benefits for you of working with the public um, as opposed to um, other researchers? Well, there are lots of benefits. I mean, in very simple practical terms, you can get more done because you've got more people involved. So, you know, archaeology is not particularly brilliantly funded. Obviously, you know, there are other things that are important to people like the NHS and whatever. Um, so if you can get people working on archaeology and they're getting fresh air and exercise and um, uh, that sense of um, working together and developing new skills and a new sense of sort of connection with the world of learning, then that's great for the people who are getting involved, but it also means that we can um, make new discoveries that wouldn't be possible in other ways. Mm. So um, that's, that's, what, that's what I enjoy about mm. it. It's great working with people who you know, have, that, have that sense of kind of doing something for the first time and making a new discovery. You know, us archaeologists get used to it. You talk about skeletons earlier. Mm. We kind of get used to them. But it's wonderful when you, you've got people who are really discovering that, that excitement of trying something for the first time and, and getting involved in that puzzle. Mm. Because it's not like we've got the answers mm. and we're waiting for them to discover them. We're all puzzling. It's like reading a detective mm. novel. Mm. So you really don't know what you're sort of a lot of the time going to no, discover. No. It's, a, it's a complete no, no. gamble. I mean, I say we think these, these yeah. features arise yeah. from the Roman, but... Where do you get your kind of clues from? Well, there's bits of Roman pottery on the mm -hmm. surface and, right. and bits of stuff that looks like brick and tile. Mm -hmm. But it could be a different date when we get down there. We mm -hmm. don't know. And the Roman period itself covers 350 years. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, that's the length of time that goes between us and, you know, Elizabeth I. Mm -hmm. It's a long period of time. It mm -hmm. could be right at the beginning of that period. It could be right at the end. It could go all the way through. Um, could stop halfway. Yeah. Have the public helped to make some really important discoveries in the in the past. Oh, absolutely, yeah. yes. I mean, at um, well, we were talking about castles earlier. Um, when I was still at Cambridge, I did a dig at Clare Castle in Suffolk, and we discovered a, a cemetery, uh, a burial ground in the Castle Bailey. You know, within the the kind of yard that, that is part of the castle. Um, there'd been rumours about it for years before, but no one had ever actually found any in situ burials. Um, and there are often rumours about burial grounds. It's a mm. sort of thing tends to come up um, and we were able to date that um, and uh, they've now gone on to do more excavations um, working with the public in working on villages which is the main area I sort of research um, the origins of settlement um, because we've been able to do more than 2,000 separate excavations in more than 60 villages all carried out by members of the public of all ages from teenagers sort of right up to we have people in their 80s taking. Gosh, really? <laughs> yes, yeah. Wow. Um, and um, but putting all of that information together, we've met, actually come up with a new method of identifying the impact of the Black Death, which can tell us about that in any community. So the historical records don't tell us what the impact of the Black Death was, apart from the tiny number of, you know, handful of villages that have got mm. written records, but, you know, 99.9% .9 of them don't have. Um, and yet by looking at the changes in the amount of pottery, 
um, you can reconstruct that. And we know on average the population was about 45% lower after the Black Death than it had been before. Is that as a, as a country, as a, as a local? Well, that's all, most, most of this has been in Eastern yeah, England so far. Yeah. Um, interestingly, the limited amount of work we've done in Lincolnshire so far, okay. like Bardney, doesn't seem to show that drop. So I don't know if Lincolnshire was more resilient. We could really usefully do some more. Perhaps we But um, some of the Norfolk villages, and Norfolk and Lincolnshire, kind of have a lot of similarities mm -hmm. in many ways. Um, we found the Norfolk, Norfolk was really badly hit. Um, mm -hmm. The agricultural villages seem to have suffered really badly. That's where we see the amount of pottery that turns up just fall off a cliff. Whereas in Suffolk, where there's lots of market towns, they seem to have done much better. Gosh, how interesting. So the, the volume of pottery can, can tell you the, the resilience of a, of a population. Yeah, pottery wow. is like, it's like kind of dandruff. You know, human <laughs> communities in the past just shed it. Wow. You know? um, until the cool, you know, county council started collecting rubbish, people just, you know, you'd throw your rubbish out on a sort of heap outside the back door. You sure. might spread the manure on the fields every now and again, mm. but most of it just... Sits. Well, I suppose in years to come, it'll be plastic, won't it? That'll be what we... <laughs> well, it will be, but of course, we don't, we don't now bury most of our rubbish in the back garden. No. So actually, um, archaeologists of the future will come around and they'll think that there's been some huge apocalypse because we'll have no records, because all our records are computerised and, you know, I don't know if anyone's got a, you know, Betamax video system yeah. or an old, you know, um, three and a half inch floppy disk any no. longer, but you can't read them now, nice. you know, so we won't have any records and none of the finds will be where we live, so... They'll just think there's been some huge apocalypse, and that we just had to keep. Well, and that we had occasional massive festivals that were where we dumped all of our rubbish at the same time. Yeah, you know, of course. Yeah. Which of course were the landfill sites. Wow. So. <laughs> Did you always know you wanted to work in history and, and archaeology in particular? Yeah, I was. Um, I was brought up in South Norfolk okay. um, on a farm, and was actually I was really interested in dinosaurs as a sort of seven, eight-year-old. Sure. Um, and liked fossils and I think what I liked about fossils was the fact you could walk across the fields and just find them you didn't have to have any money to buy them and you didn't have to go out anywhere to go to a shop or anything so I think that sense of being able to discover physical evidence from the past comes from that and I was just always interested in stuff from kind of a long time ago um, and then as I got older I got more interested in humans in the past rather than animals in the past dinosaurs obviously it's not archaeology but there's a kind of link there's a link that's, um, that's, that's where I got the Did you have from. like influences at home or? Uh... Um, well, none of my family have ever been archaeologists. Mm -hmm. My family are mostly lawyers, in fact. And there's a kind of similarity because it is about collecting evidence and, and trying to interpret that evidence and then make an, uh, put an argument together for what sure. you think that evidence means. So the thinking processes are a bit the same. My grandfather was very interested in local history. He used to go out looking at uh, brass rubbings in churches and took <laughs> me and my sister out. Though I must admit, mostly, he'd take us to the sweet shop first and buy us lots of sweets and then we'd go out doing the brass rubbing. And I think, ah. Oh, are really interested in it was probably the sweets. Oh. <laughs> I don't think anyone that age would, would uh, be any differently. <laughs> so I think there was some supportive interest but you know I don't have a there's no family history of archaeology at yeah, all yeah. but and we were taken to sort of you know old sites as, mm, as children mm, and museums and mm. stuff. It makes you wonder if children today with their pastimes being very much more technology focus, they're, they're there with iPads, perhaps not so much out in the garden digging and, and exploring no, history. It no. makes you wonder if the next generation is, is, is going to be interested in, in I think I think things. perhaps it's difficult to know because in a way digital technology can make the past much more vividly alive. Mm. You know, you've got augmented reality, you can show you what things were like and you can get quite engaging exhibits. I was at the um, 
museum and uh, the Civil War Museum in Newark not very long ago with my, my youngest and you know we were looking at some of the exhibits there and they're very hands-on and, and that's great mm. but and, and but I think people still like that authenticity of something real and when I was at Cambridge we had a big program involving teenagers in digging as a way of raising their sort of academic aspirations and their uh, self-confidence and um, enabling them to gain skills that would help them in sort of education and in the workplace mm. And um, one of the things they really loved was the fact these would be sort of 13, 14, 15 year olds, um, from mostly from families where no one had been to university before. Um, and, you know, we, we'd have them out, we'd give them a briefing and say, okay, you're going to dig a one metre square following these instructions. Here's your equipment, here's a map showing where it's going to be. Um, you know, we'll see you in half an hour wow. <laughs> and then see how you're getting on. And yeah. they'd spend two days doing that. And what almost you know we again and again and again they would just be staggered by the fact they were a being allowed to dig a hole in someone's <laughs> garden the b it was that authenticity of it um the fact that they knew they were making new discoveries and then they, they knew they were new because they knew they'd physically uncovered them and they mm. couldn't believe they were being allowed to do something that was genuinely a new excavation they thought they were going to be given a sand pit that we'd pre-filled with finds sure. you know we said well no you know this is an opportunity for you to make new discoveries like about the impact of the black death on this village you know why would we waste your time and hours mm. giving you a sand pit to dig mm. when actually with a bit of support um, and a set of instructions and experts coming around to advise you and tell you what you're finding you can make new discoveries and I think what's amazing is we get so used to that fact that when you're doing anything you can just press your kind of undo button mm. can't you yeah <laughs> or, or you know or restart or something but of course when you're digging you can't do that excavation is a one and one one only thing um, and there's something very powerful about that for young people you know this is your one chance this is the one chance that anybody will ever have um, and you know they'll find a tiny little bit of you know what looks like a tiny little bit of crud um, and then an expert comes up to them and says that's a thousand years old and that's always mind-blowing does that really sort of spur you on do you do you love to see that reaction from, from people it doing is, it for the yes, first time yeah and they're like yeah. sort of they'll they'll found often they'll find a little bit of sort of you know blue and white willow pattern and they'll be like oh this is really old but it's the bit that's really really old that might be 10 times as old as that is the bit that doesn't look as interesting mm. um and that again just opens people's mind i would you know they just say again and again i would never have thought it and they'll look at the tray of stuff they found and say well if we found this much from just one meter square what else might we find in the rest of this garden or next door's garden or the other side of the street or the other end of the village um, and you can it's just always exciting hearing people's seeing people's minds opening up in that way it just you know that, that idea that's so much more in the world than people have thought about mm. and I think that's something that stays with and you so much more than just our world that we that we exactly, know today yes, yeah, yeah. yeah do you remember your first dig Yes, yeah. my first dig was um, I went on uh, was Vindolanda on Hadrian's Wall, oh. um, and I went on that in the year between sort of the first and the year, second year of sixth form. We'd been on a school trip to Hadrian's Wall, and they were advertising for diggers there. I don't think I was particularly distinguished on it, to be honest. I'd never <laughs> been on it before. It was a Roman site. I was put on a relatively harmless bit of it, <laughs> but I do remember it yeah. because it, it, it is that feeling of you know you're being allowed behind the barriers. You're in kind of privileged space. You're mm. doing something that other people aren't, mm. and yeah, you're making discoveries of you know stuff that is thousands of years old. Yeah. yeah. And what would be your 
either sort of a fav favourite <laughs> discovery? What would be your, your favourite moment of your career? Um, I think... I always find this a difficult question. You imagine mm. I get asked this quite mm, a lot. I think, and do, I think yeah. people are waiting for a sort of, well, I found this gold brooch. Sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. um, but it is, I mean, I mentioned DNA earlier and sort of fragments of dandruff and stuff like that. And archaeology is really about the way the little finds build up. Mm. So, you know, to discover that we've got evidence under the village, you know, anybody listening to this lives somewhere whether you've been living there for a year or whether your family's been there for generations, you know, the fact that there's little bits of pottery under there which will tell you how the people who lived in that same space before you experienced the Black Death mm. or the Roman conquest or the Norman conquest um, is what always really excites me. And I think so my mind was the exciting discovery was really that we, we had this approach, that we could make those discoveries. Though I think that there are the, the find, if I had to go for one find, mm. the one that stays with me yeah. is when I was doing a time team shoot and we found a bit of um, mirror um, on a site, a broken bit of mirror, and it didn't look like anything in particular and we needed specialists to say, well, this is probably what it is. Mm. Um, and then it was cleaned up and conserved and by the time the conservator had finished with it, you could just about see your reflection in it. And it was kind of amazing looking at this thing and seeing your kind of reflection looking back because it was still very corroded. So it was a very misty, distorted reflection of something quite ghostly about it. And I think this is the first time anybody's looked back out of this mirror. Mm. Makes you wonder who the last person 18, was. Exactly, that, that in you know, 1800 that. years, yeah. you know. And, and, and I do remember, you know, it's like mostly we get quite used to this sort of mm. feel about, you know. Um, you know, we got stuff from a long time ago, but that definitely gave me a little bit of a free song. Yeah. I bet you, you mentioned um, Time Team. Um, what was probably, well, what was your favourite moment of, of, of that? And, and how did you actually sort of end up working on Time Team? <laughs> actually, Time Team was the first, the first time I ever stayed in Lincoln was okay. actually um, for a Time Team shoot. Um, we were doing an Anglo-Saxon cemetery out at South Carlton, I think. Um, a long time ago. Um, and, um, but that was very interesting, it was an Anglo-Saxon cemetery, which is always interesting. I think the, the time team that always really, um, it sort of typified, it's time team was about that stuff, that archaeology of the past isn't shut away mm. in museums and stuff, mm. it's anywhere. And, you know, we did some amazing sites like kind of Hadrian's Wall and Buckingham Palace and all that sort of thing. But the one I enjoyed most, I think, was one where we found a Roman villa in someone's back garden. It was a little terraced house with a you know, garden that was about, well, it was the width of it. It was a Victorian terraced house for the garden. It wasn't more than, I don't know, 15 feet wide sort of thing. And uh, we did a two-metre square trench in the back garden of this and found this Roman mosaic. Wow, at the and was that completely random? The... We suspected it might be there because it'd been, there'd been some record in the Victorian period that there'd been a villa there. Uh, and that was before the estate had built, before the Victorian terraced houses had been built. Oh, gosh. So that was a real surprise. For well, you. it was just amazing to see it sort of peeling off there, really, and then you can see the patterning. And what was really fantastic was there actually was a... a the mosaic had clearly been damaged in antiquity um, and then mended. Mm -hmm. um, and you could see where this mend had involved, you know, mosaics, like it's little squares, sure. isn't it? Yeah. It's all size of a sugar cube sort of thing. Um, and, but actually where they'd mended it, they'd put in big chunks of stone, the kind of size of your fist. Mm -hmm. um, and, but they'd made this pathetic attempt. The, the mosaic was in sort of red and black and white, which they usually are. Mm -hmm. And the stone that they'd put in was blitz of tile, 
that were red and bits of limestone that were white and bits of darker stone that were black. It was like they made this pathetic attempt to follow the pattern. <laughs> um, we were looking at it thinking, well, obviously what's happened is this mosaic that somebody's paid for when the Roman Empire was at its height and they, you know, it's like buying a sports car or something like that, you know. Um, and then as the tide of history has turned and the Roman Empire's got into trouble and Britain is left to fend for itself, people don't have the money or the expertise to look after this mosaic anymore. Yet they made this pathetic attempt to kind of cobble it together. <laughs> it, and it says something about the attitudes of the people then, I think. They're just like us. You know, when times are hard, you want to try and keep going. You want to try and preserve what you've got. And sometimes you, you just can't. And, and history's on the wrong side. Gosh. And did you expect that you would be in television eventually? Is that something that, I mean, obviously, you know, you've, you, <laughs> your, your career sort of developed out of a, a love of, of what you were doing and, and um, an interest from that. I mean, how did you actually end up working in television? Uh, it was sheer fluke, I think. Really? Yeah, I never, ever planned on going to television. I was never interested in that sort of thing when I was at school. I was never in the school play or anything like that. Um, and went into archaeology um, as kind of... I, you know, it got to my sort of mid-late 20s and had, I've been working really quite hard. I knew if I was ever going to have a family that I'd probably need to be able to get ahead of the game to be able to sort of um, uh, fit a family around that. Um, and um, the first thing I ever knew about Time Team was um, I was uh, doing some research in Birmingham, but living in Wiltshire. So I used to go up to Birmingham once a week to talk to colleagues. and. Um, arrived there and one of my colleagues said, oh, someone from telly's been trying to get in touch with you. <laughs> and you know, there was no telly at all. Mm. And this was in the mm. mid-1990s. There was no archaeology on telly whatsoever. Um, it was incredibly out of fashion. And um, so I assumed it was some sort of news story. And then it turned out they were kind of recruiting for this series that hadn't been on telly then because it was new. So, you know, it was complete. And someone was saying it was a bit like an archaeological game show. Okay. Some people <laughs> might remember. Sold it. Well, no, <laughs> which sounds a nightmare. Someone yeah. tried to establish a serious <laughs> career, you know. Um, I remember doing some sort of supermarket sweep where everybody <laughs> dashes well, I don't up know and if starts Someone digging. might remember a series called Challenge Anika, <laughs> okay. which was yeah, yeah, kind of, uh, you know, Anika Rice, who was a sort of Swedish TV presenter, was given kind of three days to build an orphanage or do something like that, you know. And she'd be rushing around doing this and that. And they said, well, it's a bit like that. And I was like, God, this sounds like a complete, you know, this is going to be professional suicide. But I had a chat with the producer and he said, he was very reassuring. and said, well, we're not aiming to make you look stupid. You know, if you get something wrong, we'll edit it out. And, you know, it's just about the process of discovery. And I had a look at my contract with the Royal Commission on Historic Monuments and I couldn't see anything that I'd have, could be sacked. <laughs> it went horribly yeah. wrong. So. So we gave it a go, and the first one was just so funny. Mick Aston, who was a guy in the What was the first episode about? Uh, the first one we ever did was actually Much Wenlock in Shropshire. That was the first one we filmed. Sure. It wasn't the first one broadcast, right. but it was the first yeah. one we filmed. Um, and Mick, who was the uh, guy in the stripy jumper, had bought, he decided, we used to start filming after lunch in the first day, uh, in the first series, and um, he decided to relax us. He'd bring a few bottles of red wine for lunch. Oh, right. And okay. I don't drink a great deal anyway, <laughs> certainly not at lunchtime. Um, so a good the, start. Oh, got the first, <laughs> filming the first and it was one of those really awkward things. They had a very set piece in where we stood us around a table and we all had to say what we were going to do and okay. Tony'd introduced it, you know. Yeah. And it was just awful. And none of us could remember our lines and, you know, oh, it was chaos. Um, 
how and you watch I mean if, if you they're all online these days mm. if you google programs from the first series and watch one of those and then compare it with ones from the last series mm. I, mean, I left it in 2005 but the difference in the pace of mm. the programs is unbelievable mm. it's the first the early series we're just sort of pottering about really just sort of finding the end your feet of it and, yeah by yeah, the end of it everyone's yeah. rushing around and it's let's yeah. do more of this and dig this and extend that yeah, you know, it's fun. yeah. but it was good for i mean you, you uh, it was great yeah, it, was, yeah. Really it. it was it was wonderful there was a real can-do attitude i think that's one of the things that again it's a bit like the university of lincoln there's that feeling mm. of right if you've got a good idea let's go for it mm. um but tv is very much like that you know i remember once we had a we came down on sunday morning we were digging in uh, Glasgow and there'd been an England-Scotland football match the night before which I think Scotland had lost and we came down the following morning and so then well the um, JCB uh, had or the big mechanical digger had um, got a puncture someone had slashed the tyres um, and this is Sunday morning yeah you know nine o'clock yeah. in uh, a govern on the edge of Glasgow and um, you know, in any other circumstance, everyone would give him up as a bad job till Monday. Yeah. And mending a puncture on an enormous, you know, earth-moving vehicle is not, not easy. Yeah. But, you know, it was like, okay, we're going to have to get this sorted. We need to use JCB. Somebody's going to have to find something. And things get done. Things get sorted. Yeah. Um, and that was always the thing with Time Team. It just had that feeling of can-do. Mm. Mm. Um, and, and they were, you know, genuinely very concerned that the archaeology would be done properly as well. You know, all the reports were written up. It has a better publication record than most commercial units, you know, in terms of all the, the stuff that never gets on the telly, mm. you know, the non-glamorous mm. stuff. Mm. It's like doing washing up after those, you know, cookery programs. Yeah. You, know, you never see that bit, do you? No, but it has to be done. Yeah, and I suppose, it, it do, you know, it does make a difference as well, doesn't it? It's that those, those records, those discoveries, they, they will always be a part of history. And, and, exactly, yeah. and, and if stuff doesn't get recorded, then it's not known about it and it'll yeah. get forgotten. Yeah. Um, and as I said before, you can only dig it once. Yeah. So you can't put it all back and leave it now for somebody else to come along and do properly yeah. later on. Yeah, it's got to be done properly first time. Yeah, yeah. So fast forward to now, and you, you're, you're, you're lecturing, you're a professor at the University mm -hmm. of Lincoln. You're also lecturing all over the world, I understand. Um, <laughs> what does your week look like on, a, on, a, on an average week? <laughs> well, there's not much of a, you know, that's a difficult thing. And at the moment, this, I, I teach in the second semester. Mm -hmm. So at the moment, this year, I'm teaching on Thursdays. Mm -hmm. So that's about the only... Um, regular repeating thing yeah. um, but that's not every year every year it's, is different yeah. um, and you know every week's different it's one of the great things about it we've got a project at the moment where we're extending the um, sort of public engagement from the university so trying to um, give more members of the public chance to come along and sort of get involved in university research find out about it contribute to it so we've got a project doing that, which is very busy. We've got a conference coming up for that. And yeah. um, I'm just starting a new European project, which is collaborating with colleagues in the Netherlands, the Czech Republic and Poland, doing work with communities in those three countries to see what the impact is on people who take part, to see what the benefits are to sort of communities and people in terms mm. of feeling... Um, more connected with their local history and does that make them feel better about their lives and um, what kind of skills do they get from it. Um, so we're just starting that, we started that at the beginning of, of this month, beginning of February. Wow, you um, have a lot under your belt. <laughs> How do you relax? What do you do in your spare time? What other interests do you have? Uh, I, I don't, to be honest. <laughs> it's not one of my strong suits. I, I don't really, the time I, you know, 
I get back from work, you know, a bit of domestic supper, uh, you know, maybe, I mean, I'm trying to learn Russian at the moment, but that doesn't sound like very, anything very relaxing, but actually it's quite... Very intense. It's, well, it's quite a distraction, it's good, that's quite... But, um, I understand you have children as well, do yes, you? Yes, I've got three children. Family life keeps you busy as yes, it is, Yes, yes, yeah, yeah, two of them are quite grown up, but... Okay. Uh, um, so yes, and then there's, there's just the normal routine of sort of pottering around. But no, I don't think relaxing is my, my strong suit, really. Um, there is obviously a lot of acclaim around your work. You're, you're, you're very well known in your field and you're very celebrated um, in your field. Um, in your personal life, um, I understand your, your 30s were, were quite a traumatic time for you. Yes. Um, how do you look back on your situation, what happened to you, uh, I'm talking specifically about um, your experience with um, a, a misdiagnosis of, of cancer. Yes, um, yeah, I was 33 um, when I was diagnosed with breast cancer. Um, my, I had two children then, um, uh, the elder one had just turned five and the uh, younger one was 11 months old, so he was still a baby, um, he wasn't even walking. Um, and um, it was it was you know terribly traumatic. Um, not I, mean, I, th I think I just I was just terribly worried I was going to leave children who wouldn't rem remember me. You know, being diagnosed with breast cancer in the early thirties, the prognosis is often not very good. It's often you know more virulent at that age, mm. um, and everything had been going sort of you know just kind of going reasonably well. I'd mm. started with time team. It just we've been doing that for five or six years I suppose by then and so that was really taking off and you know I'd got two children and um, you know we were living in Wiltshire and it was all very nice and um, this just came sort of crashing in. Um, it meant I, I had a lot of surgery it was it was particularly difficult because the all the work that you know they'd done some tests on a lump and mm. they said it was all fine um, but they were going to take it out anyway and then then they came back and said they'd had a look at the lump and actually it was cancer. And I couldn't, you know, they, because all the tests before had said it was fine, that was really difficult because I didn't... You, wasn't, you weren't expecting it, well, I suppose. Firstly, I wasn't expecting it at all. And second, I'd had sort of benign fibrous lumps before, so I was kind of quite used to that. Um, but also, what I, I, I couldn't see how they could monitor me safely going forwards. Mm. So they were saying, well, we can do ultrasounds and we can do, you know, biopsies and we can do this, that and the other, sort of going forwards. And I was saying, but none of those tests picked it up before. Um, so I ended up, I mean, they advised me to have one mastectomy and then I had a second one. And sort of, you know, before Angelina Jolie made that sort of thing fashionable, yeah, as it were. Sure. Um, but um, because I, I didn't want to be exposed to that risk and they kept saying, well, we, we don't want to do a second mastectomy. It's not necessary. We can monitor it. And I was saying, well, but none of the methods you're offering to monitor it picked it up before. So, so, so you, you'd almost lost trust. And, oh, and completely, yeah. completely, yeah. yeah. Um, and then we lived with that for three years. Um, I'd been hoping to have a, another child, but they said, don't do that. The hormonal implications of that are very bad. Um, and we were just, you know, every time you get an ache, people who've been through this will, you know, be familiar with this, but every ache or twinge you get, not only do you worry about it yourself, but of course the medics worry about it. So you're, you know, every, you know, I think you, you get stressed, so you tend to get symptoms, and then those go off and get tested. You must you have been know. constantly on so it. You're constantly medicalised and constantly, you know, you just have no idea from one 
day to the next, really, whether suddenly something like that is just going to come crashing in again, mm -hmm. like it had time. And, you know, people say it makes you stronger. Well, I, I, it's great for people that does. I don't think I coped with it very well. <laughs> you know, you got, I got on and we carried mm. on doing time team. You and, carried you on know. filming throughout. Yeah, yeah. Mm. But, you know, I, I wasn't sort of, I don't think I was a model of resilience and <laughs> fortitude, really. Not on the inside, anyway. And then they suddenly turned around three years later and said it had all been a mistake. And that was almost more difficult to deal with. You know, I'd had all the surgery by then, I had a huge amount of treatment and that sort of thing. And then for them suddenly to turn around and say, actually, none of that was necessary was... And of course, I didn't trust, I didn't trust the medical thing anyway, because they hadn't detected it in the first place. Mm. And of course, the reason they hadn't detected it in the first place, because there, there was nothing actually there. It was one person making a mistake looking at mm. them. Mm. Um, I can't imagine what would have been going through your head at that. Do you know, Emily, I don't know. Mm. I, 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 you know, it was just utterly disorientating it was it just felt unreal mm. and you know I look back at it now and it's it's a long time ago now um, and it almost feels like it happened to somebody else mm. um, and but I was I mean, mainly I was just hugely relieved mm. I was just so relieved that it wasn't going to come back and get me I mean the, the baby that had been 11 months was nearly four by then and you know uh, my, my daughter was seven or whatever, so the children were a little bit older, and I got the point of thinking, well, you know, at least, the, you know, at least the baby would remember me if I died. And it's a pathetic sort of thing, really. No, no. Um, but it was just, I was just hugely relieved. But, you know, my husband was very angry. Uh, a lot of, you know, family were, were very cross about it. I was just... It seemed like he was angry for you while you were more relieved. Well, it's, yes, it's, I think yeah. I mean, it, people respond in different yeah, ways, then. they? So I was just, just, just relieved. But it was just very disorientating. And it just, it just... In a way, it's oddly liberating because both with the diagnosis and particularly this, and, and the time team thing, everything's, you know, so many strange unexpected things have come into my life I, I was never planning a telly career and it just happened to come out of the blue really um, I was never obviously planning a cancer diagnosis I certainly wasn't expecting it to turn up to have been a mistake um, and I think that's probably one of the reasons when you know people say how do you plan your career and my answer is always I have absolutely no idea <laughs> I think it's interesting that you said that you wouldn't describe yourself as resilient when I'm sure many people who are possibly listening to this would think, you know, you, you wow, what, what a strong woman to, to and, 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 and so inspirational to have achieved all you have in the face of such adversity, I mean. Well, I, I think people who've been through difficult times will, will know that you don't really have much choice. You know, you can sit on the floor and cry, but sooner or later you've got to get up, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and you know, you, you just have to get on. Mm. Um, and and I, th I think people will recognise that. Everyone's brave in dealing with what they have to deal with. Mm. Um, there may be people listening to this who have, who have been through trauma. And, I'm uh, sure, I'm sure, yeah. I thank yeah. you for, for sharing your experience. <laughs> I've and, been very uh, lucky that other opportunities have come up. And I think, I think what it has left me with is rather like when the opportunity to come to Lincoln came up. You know, it was again, it was a big change. It was just an opportunity that came up, really. Mm. Um, and I did have that feeling of, okay, well, sometimes these things just come out of blue. Bit rather like with the telly thing, well, I'll give it a go. That looks like a good idea. Um, and I think just 
you know, has left me inclined to think, well, every now and again things come up unexpectedly and I'm perhaps more likely to... I guess it's risky behaviour, isn't yeah. it, which we're all telling our teenagers they shouldn't do. <laughs> no, well, you have, a, you have a really great way of, of, of thinking about it. And, yeah, you're an inspiration. It's you're welcome. It's very kind. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's amazing. And um, how do you look back on it all now? I, I suppose you would just hope that lessons have been learned. Yes, I think, I mean, I do remember when, you know, when the consultant first told me about the, that it was cancer, mm. and it wasn't him who'd made the mistake, it was the pathologist. And I remember saying, well, are you sure? Should we get a second opinion? And he said, well, you could, but really we need to focus on what we're going to do next, you need surgery. I mean, we're talking about 200 people who were misdiagnosed yes, at the time as well. So it's, yes, I mean, yeah. really and some serious. people had much worse than really me because serious. there were some people, I mean, I think I was one of the four or five most serious cases, but um, there were others who'd had positive diagnosis of cancer missed, and one of those had died. And, you know, so actually being falsely diagnosed with something you haven't got is actually infinitely less bad than somebody missing something when it should have been picked up but um but I, I remember this sort of thing about should we get a second opinion and obviously looking back at it now it's like why didn't I get a second opinion if we'd just done that we could have stopped not only my three years of you know three years of really living with the the very strong anxiety about it all but also the, the effects it's had on the rest of my life I, you know I had to leave the, my job with the Royal Commission because I had all lymph nodes had been taken out and I couldn't do solo working because of risk of infection, so I lost that job. And uh, you know, but that opened up sort of opportunities working at Cambridge, and that's what's brought me here. So things do turn up. Okay, so looking at plans for the long-term future, we have you here in Lincoln, and we love having you here in Lincoln. Are you planning on staying in the city for a long term? Well, as you can imagine, my attitude to long-term plans is slightly against the experience of things that tend to come out of the blue. But at the moment, I love it here. Um, I love Lincoln. I love the uh, opportunity there is in the region to do things that make a difference. And the university, my role at the university, is enabling me to do the things that I think are important and good. So I've no plans to leave. Corenza Lewis, thank you very much for joining us for our first Lincolnite podcast. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much.